Hi everyone, welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight, we're talking about biosecurity and protecting your horses from disease. Uh, tonight's live event is sponsored by Neogen, which is the maker of an array of biosecurity products for your horse. So one of the risks of working for a horse health media company is that those of us who work here uh, get to see the worst case scenarios uh, and the constant onslaught of equine disease outbreaks throughout not only the United States, but the world. Um, and because of that, I personally can see risks to my horses around every corner. It's from letting my horse ride in a friend's trailer so we can share uh, gas going up to the mountains to ride. It's the community uh, hose making contact with more than one bucket at the dressage show um, as people fill the buckets down the shed row. Uh, and if you meet me and we're out on the trail, I, I might say hi, but I'm not gonna stick around long enough to let my horse sniff noses with yours uh, because I'm paranoid. <laughs> so am I too worried? Uh, to answer that question, as well as all of yours that you send in during registration that you're gonna send in live tonight, we're joined by Dr. Roberta Dwyer of University of Kentucky and Dr. Joe Lyman of Neogen. Welcome doctors. Thanks, Michelle, for having us. Yeah, pleasure to be here. So I'm going to start with you, Dr. Dwyer. Let's uh, have you tell us a little bit about your interest in biosecurity and your work with horse owners to prevent disease spread. Well, somehow I got started in the infectious disease world um, shortly out of vet school and discovered that when you're working with a lot of disease outbreaks, it's either for a disease for which there's a vaccine that and there's no vaccine that's 100% or it's for one of the many diseases for which there are no real good preventive measures. So you're quote unquote left with biosecurity. And I've seen where really strict biosecurity practices can stop outbreaks in their tracks, literally. Um, other ones take a little bit more time, but it, they can be very effective tools in stopping disease outbreaks. And Dr. Dr. Lyman, can you tell us about your interest in equine biosecurity? Yeah, I started my career as a resident veterinarian on a breeding farm in Lexington. And so I got to see firsthand the consequences of biosecurity breaks in a fairly large and concentrated horse population. And then having joined Neogen, I actually now am involved in the development of biosecurity tools and then educating horse owners and veterinarians on uh, the proper use and ways to protect horses from disease. I wanna give everyone listening a quick review of our Ask the Horse Live format. We're gonna start with the questions that everyone submitted during registration. If you have a question you'd like to ask live or if you would like clarification on uh, a response, you can enter your question in the chat window in front of you if you're listening online. We're going to do our best to get to as many of you as possible. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, Dr. Dwyer, the first question is for you. Uh, Bailey in Idaho wants to know, when we're talking about biosecurity, what diseases are we most concerned about with our horses? Well, when you're talking about biosecurity, you're talking about infectious diseases and especially the ones that come to mind most often are those diseases that are highly transmissible between horses, although that might not necessarily be um, always the case. 
what's on a lot of people's minds right now is is herpes virus, strangles, equine infectious anemia, influenza, a lot of the diseases that we hear about all the time um, through the media. But really, biosecurity, when you look at it in total, is reducing the risk. You're not ever going to prevent things 100%, but reducing the risk of infectious diseases to horses. And that includes those that are transmitted by ticks and mosquitoes and other types of insects. So it's sort of a, a whole package. Okay. Dr. Lyman, our next question is for you. Marie is in Florida, and she wants to know if there are any uh, skin diseases a bio, that are a biosecurity risk. For example, she says her horse never had scratches until she boarded the mare at a barn where other horses had scratches. You know, as Dr. Dwyer pointed out, biosecurity is simply uh, everything we do to limit the spread and impact of infectious disease. Uh, so skin diseases that are caused by infectious agents are certainly biosecurity problems. Uh, but one of the important things that we always try to remind people is that not all infectious diseases are necessarily contagious. So this is a good example where uh, scratches in general isn't necessarily going from horse to horse, but the same conditions exist on that farm that are predisposing those animals to scratches, either uh, the particular grass or weeds that are in the field or particularly muddy or deep conditions uh, and pastures where those horses are that could be leading those horses to scratches. So in the strictest sense of biosecurity, including all infectious disease, you could certainly say that uh, there were biosecurity steps that were necessary to, to limit scratches on that farm. Uh, and, and that would be, well, you don't normally think of this as biosecurity, but uh, changing the mowing patterns in those fields or better pasture management, um, uh, managing the uh, mud or manure conditions and making sure all of the tools or grooming things that they're using that may be common to some of those horses are cleaned uh, in between application of different animals. Okay. So Marie asked specifically about scratches. Um, are there any other skin diseases that that a horse might pass to another horse? Like I'm thinking it's been a Absolutely. long time since I've had a baby horse, but you know, it seems like they all get warts if you take them to the training barn. Um, yeah, absolutely. So warts is a good example. The other one, of course, comes to mind would be ringworm, um, where it's very easy to transmit from horse to horse if you're using common grooming tools or even if the handler is uh, uh, carrying it from horse to horse themselves, uh, common blankets, those sorts of things. So, um, you know, when we talk about biosecurity, we talk about uh, comprehensive biosecurity protocols. And so, um, you include all the normal things you think of with biosecurity, cleaning and disinfection of grooming tools, those sorts of things, but just the behaviors that we engage in in how we move from horse to horse, cleaning our hands in between, and then everything about maintaining uh, a healthy population of horses that is best able to resist exposure to pathogens. Dr. Dwyer, our next question is from Jenny in Nevada, and Jenny wants to know if you can explain what herd immunity is and why it is important. Well, that's a great question because herd immunity actually is a term that's used for people as well as for horses and for cattle and any population of animals. 
And it's a principle where the more animals that are vaccinated against a disease or they naturally become infected with a disease and develop their own immunity, then it reduces their risk of becoming sick in the future. And the more um, animals in that population that develop immunity, either through vaccination or through the disease, it decreases um, the chances of a naive animal from from getting that disease. And so an, an easy way to explain it is a vast majority of the population of people in the U.S. are vaccinated for measles. And so you don't hear a lot about a measles outbreak in people. Um, and that's because there's herd immunity. If there is a person that isn't vaccinated for measles, the chances of them getting it is probably quite low. And in in horses, if you had 75 to 90% of horses vaccinated with a, a really good efficacious vaccine, you would increase the herd immunity for those other horses that weren't vaccinated. You would sort of be protecting them as part of the herd from getting diseased and coming so, down with that infection. Yeah. So when we're talking about this herd, how big of a herd are we talking about? Are we talking about on your farm, in the community where uh, where you travel with your horse, or bigger than that? Like, Is this a, a micro herd or a macro herd? <laughs> well, for herd immunity, it, it all depends on the, the disease and how it's, how it's transmitted, but you're generally talking about contagious diseases that are um, from from animal to animal, I'm thinking, you know, respiratory transmitted diseases. So then you're you're talking about within um, within an, an area because the thing you have to take into account is where those where are the herds, the members of the herd, are they being transported to horse shows, to trail rides, to sales barns, to racetracks, et cetera. So the herd can expand very broadly depending on the transportation of where those horses go. So our next question is for Dr. Lyman, and uh, this was by far the most popular question we received for tonight's event. Uh, Elaine from Ohio gets to the honors of being the one who's asking it. She wants to know, what do you do when you're not in control of the biosecurity at the barn where you board your horse? She says, most places just don't seem very concerned. And so, like I said, Elaine was one of many who was asking this question. Uh, for those who do have to board, what can they do to protect their horse? Sure. So biosecurity is obviously something that in the horse world is relatively new. Uh, when we talk about other animal handling systems like swine or poultry or uh, even beef and dairy to some extent, uh, biosecurity is something that they're very familiar with and they practice very commonly. And so we're really trying to educate people on the need for biosecurity in the horse realm. I certainly agree with Elaine uh, that most places don't seem concerned right now, and it is something we need to address. So it, it is a difficult question. What do you do when you're concerned with biosecurity, but all of the uh, people around you aren't really concerned with biosecurity for their animals. Uh, and uh, the, the example I always give is that I was deeply concerned about biosecurity and heard that I was managing as a resident pet. But we actually bordered a very large showgrounds in Kentucky, and I would see people ride very expensive 
show horses right up across the fence from yearlings and let their horses go nose to nose with their yearlings. So uh, I would, I, I'm very familiar, I guess, with uh, the difficulties that you're presented with when you're trying to manage biosecurity and people around you are. So in terms of simple things you can do to manage the uh, horse or horses that you take care of or in an environment where other people aren't concerned are uh, really practicing the, the basic tenets of biosecurity, which in real broad terms, we talk about bioexclusion, which is everything we do to keep disease away, uh, biomitigation, which is what do we do about disease that is around us, and then uh, biocontainment, which is how do we keep disease from uh, moving from where it is to other parts of a facility or to new facilities. So you have to think about the area that you do control in, uh, in an environment like that. And do you have control over the pasture that your horse is in, uh, or is it a communal pasture? If it's communal, obviously, it's going to be very difficult for you to control that environment. But do you control your horse's stall? Um, and if you control your horse's stall, then you have to make sure that you have things like dedicated tools that only go into your horse's stalls. They are used to clean other horses' stalls. Uh, dedicated tack um, is vitally important for making sure that your horses aren't exposed to diseases, particularly respiratory diseases that other horses in the barn have. And then limiting contact with personnel is another really important point. Um, I think you even mentioned at the beginning waterers, you know, making sure that the same hose isn't dunked in every horse's water uh, bucket as they go down the aisle uh, and transmit disease from some horses up the aisle to, into your horse's stall. So you, you, you try to find the things that you can control and realize that you're not reducing the risk to zero. Uh, but I do think you also have to be very outspoken and vocal when you see biosecurity breaks that could be exposing your horse or other horses in the barn to disease uh, and, and make sure that people are aware that those are very real risks and that uh, disease in horses carries very real consequences. So I have a follow-up question on that. Um for Dr. Dwyer, because I know you do extension work. So do you have any suggestions for horse owners and how to approach the barn manager or the barn owner if they do see, see any issues? So uh, that they're taken seriously, but also that you aren't, I don't know, being the squeaky wheel. Maybe you need to be the squeaky <laughs> wheel. I'm not sure. but. <laughs> Well, it, it hopefully you have a good relationship with the person that you're boarding your horse at. Um, because if if you don't, hopefully there's another place down the road that does take biosecurity seriously. But anymore, um, with some of the advents of some of the outbreaks that we've seen in this country and in others, um, I think you need to bring it to the owner's attention of, gee, you're not requiring you know, something as basic as, you know, a Coggins test or a certificate of veterinary inspection for a horse that's coming in. Um, you're not, you know, isolating this horse for, you know, a couple of weeks before you let it out with all these other horses. And this has been shown to, there's plenty of publications out there that, that say that this is, you know, best practice for reducing the risk of, reducing the risk, not eliminating, but reducing the risk of an infectious disease outbreak on this on this farm, and 
it's not only my horse that's at risk as a boarder, but all the other people who are paying, you know, board every month to have their horse in a safe facility. So I'm curious for our live audience out there, everyone who's listening, uh, I'd be interested in hearing from you if you have ever boarded at a place that requires a Coggins, um, because I know that I've boarded places where they say in their paperwork they do, but I don't think I've ever actually turned over Coggins uh, certificate to a place that I've boarded. So if you're listening, uh, we don't have polls set up, but I'm just curious, uh, go ahead and let us know if you've you've had a born owner ask for, for that Coggins certificate. Um, Dr. Dwyer and Dr. Lyman, you're there in Lexington, maybe that's uh, much more common than out here uh, in Oregon. So um, let's go ahead and get to our next question uh, while we're getting some feedback from people. Uh, Dr. Dwyer, our next question is from Bobby in Maryland. Uh, and Bobby wants to know when a new horse arrives at a riding facility, is it is keeping that horse in confinement sufficient? If so, for how long? And I'd also add uh, how what is the best way to confine that horse? So a general rule of thumb is when a new horse comes onto a facility and is going to be part of that herd, is is to keep that horse in you know, a separate area or confined by itself for about 14 days, and that's to take into account, in general, most of the incubation times of all those contagious diseases that we were talking about. And the incubation time is from the time that a horse is exposed to a virus or a bacteria to the time that it actually shows clinical signs. So if you keep that a new horse away from the resident herd, the resident population for 14 days, that in general is going to be pretty good about containing almost all, never 100%, but almost all those incubation times. While that horse is in confinement, you take their temperature twice a day. You can get them up to date on their vaccines, deworming, um, those kinds of things to make sure that a healthy horse gets entered into the herd. Keeping that horse um, quarantined like that um separate separate tools um you know you keep that horse sort of totally isolated totally separated away from the resident population because you never know if six or seven days down the road oh it's going to pop with a fever or it's going to pop with diarrhea and gee let's culture that animal and see what's going on and you find you do have something that is contagious and because you've kept that animal separated you have reduce the risk of getting that totally into your resident population of horses. So you keep them separated, you keep them, you know, isolated, just as if they were ill, you, you just keep them separated because you never know if they might be incubating something and they're just a vehicle for spreading it to the resident population if you don't keep them separated. What do you do about the horse that is upset about their quarantine and being away from the other horses in a new environment? Entertainment. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a long pause. You made me nervous. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I was, you know, I was going to say, you know, throw the goat in in the stall with them, but that doesn't work on all with all horses. You know, sometimes, you know, music is calming. Every every horse facility is different on, 
you can still have horses within visual range of each other, mm-hmm. you know, but not nose to nose contact. It doesn't mean that they have to be totally separated in, you know, that that far away barn that's, you know, you can't hear, see, or or smell any other horses. But, you know, it, there's going to be horses that are going to be upset. And I would ask Dr. Lyman to to chime in since he's got the experience of working with hundreds of horses on a on a breeding facility where that surely has happened. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, particularly with resources that were coming back for layup, that was a a fairly large challenge because they're used to being in a busy and crowded environment. And then you would bring them in and try to isolate them uh, in a barn separate from the other horses. Um, and, And I think you hit on one of the key factors, which is that most of them, as long as they're within visual and calling distance of other horses, settled in pretty quickly. Uh, it's when you tried to leave them stuck in a stall and completely separated and, and locked up from the other groups that you ended up with more difficulty. So I think it's really important to make sure that you have not just a quarantine stall, but a quarantine paddock as well. Um, make sure that the, the horses are able to get out and then still see that there are other horses on the facility and that usually calm them down pretty well. We have again in from our live audience. It's very timely, uh, Dr. Dwyer. I'll hand it to you, and then Dr. Lyman, feel free to jump in too. Sally's in Virginia, and she wants to know what about biosecurity protocols during emergency ac- um, evacuations, like the ones going on now because of Hurricane Florence, with several horses being transported over state lines and housed in other facilities. How can you minimize disease spread? It's a challenging one, huh, Dr. Dwyer? Yes, that's a challenging one, and um, that's one that there's a few states now that are allowing evacuation of horses across state lines because it is an emergency. There's a disaster going on right now. Um, And so if you're one of those um, kind souls that is taking, you know, some of these horses into your own facility, you basically do exactly what we've been talking about for since the beginning of this this conference webinar is – you, you keep those horses separated. You use separate, you know, separate tools, separate grooming supplies, you know, separate water buckets, you know, as much of that separation and isolation as you can, um, because those are new horses. They're stressed horses. They've been on the road, um, and you give them good fresh water and and clean hay and and try to decrease their stress because they're in a stressful environment but you keep them separated from your horses and you keep all the equipment separated as well. Dr. Lyman, I'd like to hear what you'd have to say. Yeah, I, I think what you've said is, is very important. You know, one of the things that we, we always talk about in biosecurity is kind of the concept of clean and dirty. Uh, clean being the things that are relatively disease-free, and as Dr. Dwyer has pointed out several times, there's no such thing as zero risk, but we think of clean as being the the disease status that we're okay with, and dirty as being potentially exposed to disease. And so you just have to, when you're bringing those horses in, you know you're bringing them in at higher risk um, to your population because you don't really know their disease status, their background, what horses they've been mingled with. To consider a dirty population, better term, 
And so you will engage in behaviors where you are clean or um, right. Hey, Dr. Lyman, you're breaking up a little bit. I'm sorry. Is that Maybe better? That does sound better. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Um, so you, you want to work from uh, the status the horses that you know, taking care of them first, and then moving to the animals that uh, you don't know and that are bringing potential disease in. And you just have to assume, even though most of them aren't going to be sick, you have to assume that all of them are, that all of them harbor disease, and make sure you behave appropriately. Um, that you're not going back and forth between your clean population and your group. Uh, so we have a follow-up to that Coggins question that I asked about uh, who in the audience has been asked to turn over Coggins paperwork or certificates when they uh, go to a, a new boarding facility. And we've had one person so far say that, that they've done that. Um, so. Dr. Dwyer, how do you feel about that? How do I feel that everybody else hasn't been asked? <laughs> that everyone else has been very quiet. It's been very everyone quiet has been out very there. quiet. Yes. Well, um, and the more I got to thinking about it, it's like for a lot of places that have show horses, um, whether they're eventers or they're, you know, they go to organized trail rides. A lot of organized trail rides require Coggins. Or they're, you know, they're hunter jumpers, quarter horse shows, whatever. A lot of those, that population of horses, just as a routine matter to get into a horse show, they have to have a yearly Coggins. Um, and so for some of them, they, they might not be asked if they, if they know this person is on the, let's just say the hunter jumper circuit, and they're going across state lines and they're going to to large horse shows all the time. They might not necessarily be asked. For that as part of their as part of their boarding agreement. Um, for I got to thinking about I, I won't say how many decades ago I was not asked for a Coggins certificate when I moved a horse that I bought my first and only horse um, as a teenager when I moved him across you know from the north part of the city to the south part of the city I was not asked for a Coggins but he did have a, a he had a veterinary, he essentially had a certificate of veterinary inspection to move 10 miles because I had embedded as a pre-purchase exam. Uh, so he had a pretty thorough um, veterinary workup, but he didn't have a, he did not have a Coggins. He had one before he moved down here to Kentucky though. So might be something that as an industry we'd like to work on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, we have a follow-up question, Dr. Lyman, from our audience. Di wants to know if there's a risk for keeping things too clean around our horses. Could our horses lose their ability to build natural immunity to pathogens because we keep everything too clean? Sure. You hear about that uh, in the, the human realm all the time, the, the concept that if we use too much antibiotics, then we're predisposing ourselves to, to having more disease. And... Uh, my answer to that in horse world is I have yet to see a facility that has been cleaned to the level of pathogen-free. Um, horse environments are very difficult to actually get sanitized to a truly zero pathogen load. Um, most of the surfaces that we deal with are porous. Uh, bacteria and viruses can hang out in the crevices and wood or in the pores of concrete. Um, there's often dirt floors. 
uh, it would be virtually impossible to make a pasture a zero pathogen environment. So I don't think you could get to the level of sanitization or disinfection around a horse where they would not be exposed to potential pathogens on a fairly consistent basis and keep their immune systems functioning. Um, we have a question from our live audience. Dr. Dwyer, I'll give this one to you. It's from Michelle, and she has a question about salmonella. She wants to know how long does a pasture need to remain closed after an affected horse has been in, has been in there um, before it can be used again for other horses? That's a wonderful question, and I would urge her to donate to a research foundation that can answer that question because we really don't know. Salmonella is one of those... Um, pathogens and I get asked this a lot so kudos on her for picking up on one of the more common questions that biosecurity folks get asked um, because it's shed in the feces and horses that are out in pastures defecate and then the pastures get contaminated and and you cannot necessarily rely on ultraviolet radiation from the Sun to kill all the bad things that are out in pastures and you cannot disinfect dirt. You cannot disinfect a pasture um, because there are things called good soil microorganisms that you want to have there because that's what keeps the soil able to grow grass and we like grass out in our pastures. Um, what's, what's, a, what's a best guess? It's, it's hard to determine because if you are dealing with an area where it's it's chronically dry versus chronically wet, you know, is it one one horse per acre or is it ten horses per acre? All of those different questions are going to have a different answer for um, the person who called in. And I would say under ideal conditions where it's you know, maybe 90 degrees and it's totally dry and it's lush grass pastures and it's one horse per five acres, I'd feel comfortable under ideal conditions without looking at the pasture and doing this blind of two weeks and you chain harrow and you let everything dry out real well and then you see what happens. But it's a very difficult question to answer for every pasture that's out there but you cannot you cannot disinfect a pasture you cannot disinfect dirt or soil and grass you just can't do that you can pick up as many manure pockets as you can if you've got like a dry lot but you're still dealing with dirt that or soil underneath that is going to be contaminated with some remnants of of manure um, we have a question from our live audience. Catherine is in Massachusetts, and she wants to know um, about, well, she says that after a friend's horse caught influenza from a new horse at her barn, they decided to add a small quarantine paddock and run and run and shed for new horses on the property. How far away should that be from the resident horses, pastures, and the barn? And let's go ahead, Dr. Lyman, on that one. Um. So influenza is usually spread by uh, droplets, although it, it can be aerosolized. And droplets uh, a few years. So 
Oh, Dr. Lyman, we're losing you again, I think. Whatever you did to fix it last time. <laughs> yeah, hello? Yep. Okay. Uh, so being spread by droplets primarily, uh, you don't have to be a vast distance away to be able to limit the spread of flu. So realistically, if you're 10 yards away, 15 yards away, uh, some people are even comfortable as long as it's a, uh, a double fence where they aren't nose to nose. Um, as long as you have an open air space between them and no contact moving back and forth uh, in terms of personnel, uh, you're usually okay with that for influenza. Uh, there are conditions where it can become aerosolized and a aerosol pathogen can spread for uh, very long distances in the hundreds of meters potentially. So in those cases, uh, there's almost no distance on a farm that would be protective. So uh, best to think about it in the context of a droplet. Uh, Dr. Dwyer, do you have any comments on that? No, I'd, I'd agree with that. If you've got a, if you've got a horse that is sick with the, with influenza and they're actively coughing and you've got a wind coming from the rear end that is, you know, pushing those droplets forward, then, you know, 15 yards might not be enough, but because um, a horse that is sick with, with influenza does have that really deep cough and they can, they can project that, um, those respiratory droplets quite a ways. And if you've got a wind behind you, then then it's something to be concerned about. But hopefully that horse would be, because they are quite sick with a, a high fever, hopefully they'd be confined in a, in a stall. So our producer, Jennifer, has just posted a link in the chat if you're listening live that is to an article that we have on thehorse.com called how to set up an equine disease isolation unit on your farm. So if anyone wants more details, you can go to that. Uh, it's thehorse.com slash 112775. Um, let's go ahead and go to our next question. Dr. Lyman, um, we have a question from uh, Beth in Colorado. Beth wants to know, is my horse at risk for contracting disease when I take him to the vet hospital? Is it better to pay for a farm call and have the vet come to my place for a visit? Uh, anytime you take your horse and expose it to a new environment, whether that's the veterinary office or a horse show or a trail ride, yes, there is the potential that it's uh, seeing pathogens that it has not seen recently. And did we lose you or are you still there? Still here. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm hearing you. Okay. Go on. There's always the possibility that a horse that uh, moves into a new environment can see new pathogens and can get sick from it. So I would always rather uh, see a horse on its farm rather than go to a, uh, a hospital setting for it. Uh, that being said, it's really important to make sure that your veterinarian is practicing good biosecurity as well, because if your veterinarian just visited another farm and saw sick horses and didn't engage in some biosecurity steps before coming to your farm, 
then it's still a risk that seeing the veterinarian can cause your horse to get sick. So uh, good to uh, ask your veterinarian to engage in some decent behavior in terms of changing coveralls, uh, if seen sick horses, or uh, use hand sanitizer before they're seeing your horses, those sorts of things. Dr. Dwyer, we have a similar question from Jesse in California. Jesse says that she lives in an area with pigeon fever. Uh, should she be concerned about her farrier carrying the disease from other farms to hers? Well, for those people in the audience who might not know what pigeon fever is um, or any of the other diseases we've been talking about, the American Association of Equine Practitioners, the AAP.org, has a great website on general disease information sheets. Um, pigeon fever is caused by a bacteria that gets into the soil and is um, very common in many states across the U.S. right now. So it's, it's, a, it's a pathogen that's in the soil and they believe that primarily it's a problem with, with insects and insects that have dirty little feet and they bite horses and um, carry this bacteria, especially around the, the the underside, the belly area of the horse, and and also around the chest area. You can see some of these huge abscesses. There's some great pictures online of um, of what to look for of these large abscesses that is caused by what is known as pigeon fever. Don't so it's blame more the of yeah, they they have, you know, very large areas on their chest. So it makes makes a horse sort of look like a, you know, a big-breasted pigeon. So it's more of a, you know, insect repellent and prompt attention to wounds on your horse that, that I would be more concerned about rather than my farrier carrying some dirt from an endemic part of California to another endemic part of California that has got the same contamination in the dirt or in the soil. So what can a horse owner do because a farrier is you know at multiple farms per day um, what can you do as a horse owner to encourage them to use biosecurity measures? Uh, I'm thinking like putting out a thing of Purell right by where the horses get shod but I don't know if that would work. Well, one thing that the horse owner can do is to not let their horse touch the, their horse's nose to the farrier's back, especially when they're, you know, they're pulling the the shoes off the front front legs or or trimming the front front hooves. You know, what does a horse like to do? But they like to smell the the farrier's back. Well, that's another nose to nose contact, even though it's not nose to nose with another horse. It's nose to potentially the the shirt or the the jacket of someone who there's another horse that has done the same thing. So don't let your horse do that. You know, safely restrain your horse for your farrier, but don't let the let the horse have nose to nose contact. You know, have a a farrier you know wash hands or use Purell because there are several pathogens that are susceptible to um, to hand washing and to you know the Purell alcohol type solutions. So, but there's certain things that the horse owner can do and just not let let that horse have the nose-to-nose contact with the backs of the farriers. Wow, that means you have to pay attention. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Um, our, our next question is for Dr. Lyman. It's from Heather in Missouri in our live audience. And Heather wants to know what steps you should take if you think your horse has an infectious disease. How can you protect other horses from, from getting that? Yeah, so going back to that concept of, of clean and dirty, uh, your horse has now become dirty and the other horses have to be clean. So you make sure that you go from the clean horses, you take care of the healthy horses first, uh, and then the last thing you do is tend to the sick horse. And then before you return back to the healthy horses, you ideally would change clothes, change footwear, uh, wash your hands or use hand sanitizer or both. Um, make sure that the any tools that are used to clean the stall of the, the sick horse are the same tools that are used to clean any of the other horses' stalls. Uh, that is isolated for water uh, and for feed from the other horses. Um, ideally, you would either move that horse into a quarantine section of of the farm if you could, uh, but a lot of times that's not practical. So you just have to make sure you're limiting the contact of the other horses with that sick horse. Uh, I don't advocate if there's not quarantine available to change the order of the stalls or shift horses around things like that. It's usually by the time you've noticed that your horse is sick, uh, the surrounding horses are potentially already exposed. So in that case, you also need to engage in good surveillance on those horses, uh, like Dr. Dwyer talked about with quarantine, taking their temperatures twice a day, paying close attention to the signs that you might normally not pay attention to, like the random cough from a horse, and making sure that you get an intervention for those horses early in the course of disease um, before things can get out of hand. Dr. Dwyer, we have a question from Danielle in Michigan, and she wants to know what horse show associations and organizers can do to help keep exhibitor horses safe. What, what recommendations do you have? Well, I, um, in looking at things for the World Equestrian Games that are ongoing now in North Carolina, they had two sets of vaccines that are required of of horses that are competing there, and that's influenza and equine herpes virus one and four. And then Eastern um, equine encephalitis and West Nile virus, I believe, are recommended. So one thing that horse show organizations can do to help keep competitors safe is potentially engage in what we talked about before in that herd immunity of if they are going to require a set of vaccines to to be documented for every competitor that comes onto that showgrounds, then you have, you know, a measure of, of herd immunity right there. Um, manure management is important, not only from the diseases um, and pathogens that can be found in passing through manure, but also as a, you know, the area where flies like to multiply and congregate, you know, making sure that manure, manure is cleared off of the showgrounds in a um, in a timely manner for the the horse show management and be part of the educational process to just keep pounding away at the biosecurity message having um, posters that are available for people for the horse show management to print off and and put up at those at all those horse shows that pe so that people who aren't listening tonight 
will understand what biosecurity really means at the horse shows. And we have a related question, Dr. Dwyer. It's from Gina in Wisconsin. And she wants to know what's the number one thing she can do as a horse owner and exhibitor to protect her horse when, when she's at a show. The number one thing. God, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> um, besides, <laughs> besides keeping vaccinations up to date, um, I would say minim, you know, avoid nose-to-nose -nose contact with other horses. And that's not only, you know, the the two pony hunters that are, you know, waiting at the end gate, you know, waiting for the next person to go and, oh, let my pony meet your pony. No, never, that should never happen. Um, but that also means if you're going to tie your horse up and and give him a bath at a common tie stall, not common tie stall, but a, a tie railing, you know, wash that railing off first before you let your horse nuzzle that. Um, because some other horse has been there and has nuzzled that, and that's nose-to-nose -nose contact by way of a tie stall, a, a tie rack, or a wash rack. So no nose-to-nose -nose contact. It's I have one of those social butterfly horses, and it is so hard. He's yes. very sad <laughs> when he's at shows. But you have to, to be firm. Everyone. You just have mm -hmm. to be firm. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a question, Dr. Lyman, from our live audience. It's from Denise, and she wants to know what infectious path pathogens can fly in insects transmit, and what are the best fly sprays and other measures to keep those flying insects away from horses? Uh, the list of diseases that can potentially be uh, carried by flies or other flying insects is probably long enough that we can fill the, the remainder of the time yeah. uh, because you have to consider that insects can play both a, a biological role in the spread of disease so something like west nile uh, where they are part of that uh, disease process uh, but they can also as uh, dr glyer mentioned with pigeon fever simply by landing on one animal and then moving to another animal carry any bacteria or even potentially fungal organisms that were on that horse's skin to the new animal. And so the, the potential list of pathogens that could be spread is almost anything um, that an animal could come into contact with. Uh, in terms of what are the best ones to, to manage, uh, I don't necessarily want to get into uh, product-specific discussion here, but really any fly spray that's commercially available and is properly applied according to the label directions, uh, it, and that includes both the amount that's applied, uh, the coverage across the entire animal, and the, uh, the frequency that it's supposed to be applied at, um, should be enough to protect against most uh, stall flies and uh, mosquitoes that we're primarily concerned about in insects for horses. Uh, certainly in areas where ticks are endemic, you need to make sure that you also include some specific control for ticks because there are also a number of diseases that they can carry and transmit. And ticks will usually require a little bit different management than just fly spray. So, Dr. Lyman, so we've, we've talked about insects spreading disease, and we've talked about humans spreading disease. What about other critters in the barns, like our, our pets or those other uninvited guests 
that like to hang out in the uh, barn. Absolutely. Uh, it, just like uh, insects can carry almost any uh, bacteria around that they encounter, uh, so can every rodent, uh, every dog or cat that runs through a barn. Um, we know that even influenza generally uh, make other species sick. Influenza tends to be species specific, but influenza can be inhaled by uh, both by humans and dogs, cats, other animals that are uh, around horses and uh, remain infected for somewhere around 24 hours. And they can, so they inhale influenza at one end of the barn and they go down to the other end and exhale this. So, uh, yeah, any animal can pose a biosecurity risk. And that's, you know, at Neogen, we always include uh, rodenticides and insecticides in our, uh, what we term our biosecurity portfolio, because it's really important to manage all of the potential ways that these can move around the facility. Uh, so wildlife control is vitally important in a barn. Uh, there are a lot of diseases that we know specifically can be carried by uh, skunks, possums, uh, but then dogs and cats. Uh, I'm not going to advocate that everybody keeps every dog and cat out of the barn. I'm a dog lover myself, uh, and so I, I know that those animals are going to be in a barn, but you need to make sure that you, you have some reasonable control over them. You're not letting your dog run around a, a barn that has a sick horse in it at the same time as you're trying to practice good biosecurity and not go near that stall until you're done with all the others, but your horse is down there nose to nose with, or sorry, your dog is down there nose to nose with that sick horse. So uh, being a little practical about how you allow your animals to move around the farm is pretty important to consider. Yeah. So if you're doing a foot bath every time you go in and out of a stall with a horse, then your dog probably should not be there. <laughs> Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. One of the real important points that I think Dr. Dwyer and I both tried to uh, bring home tonight is there's no way to bring risk to zero. And everything about biosecurity is about what is acceptable risk. And I think for most people, having uh, companions in bar is going to be something that they consider to be acceptable risk. You just have to be intelligent about it. And, and when there are increased risk factors like a sick animal in the barn, then let's go ahead and limit the way we allow that dog to roam around. Um, so our next question is for Dr. Dwyer, and it's from Justine in Oregon. And she wants to know about her horse that's kept at home and has no contact with other horses, uh, except for when he goes to lessons. What biosecurity does she need to put in place? So if this horse just goes to, is transported, I'm assuming, to another barn and she is being given lessons by a trainer, um, I would say the vaccines for that, for her own horse need to be kept up to date and she should contact her veterinarian in her area to, you know, get the most up-to-date information and, you know, protocol for that. No nose to nose contact with any other horses in the barn. Can you can you see the re repeating message here? <laughs> we don't like nose to nose contact, mm -hmm. and use all of her own equipment. Don't you know? Hopefully, don't forget. Oh, I didn't for I the water bucket is left at home, so I'm going to borrow one of yours. No, 
bring all of your own stuff and just keep everything self-contained and and um as long as you know where she's going for lessons doesn't have any coughing horses or any other problems um i think she should be in pretty good shape so, Dr. Dwyer, since you mentioned water buckets, I'm going to jump to this question from Carrie in Missouri, who wants to know, what about at endurance rides where there are shared water tanks out on the trail uh, for the horses? Is it okay to share those water tanks? Um, and we have a related question from Linda in Texas, who says, if you're trail riding and near a lake, can it be considered safe to let your horse drink? Uh, so, Dr. Dwyer, do you want to take a stab at those questions well when you're on an endurance ride and they can be you know for some of us that might be a one one mile endurance ride and for other horses it might be a hundred mile endurance ride but for the competitive and you know the the true endurance rides those horses have to be watered um, because dehydration will kill them so at some of these rides they're literally the places where they do have watering stops they are um, troughs of water that have been supplied by the organizers, and there there might not be places where the support staff for the competitor can actually bring in their own water with their own buckets because it's just it's too rugged of an area. And so those horses have to get watered because they have to keep their hydration status up. So you know, it's a, a risk-benefit ratio. You're going into this endurance ride or this competitive ride knowing that, well, there's going to be some shared water sources and you go into that knowing that that's a risk that you're going to have to take. Um, for the the average trail riding horse that is just going out for an, for an afternoon here or there, I've done that thousands of miles. And your horses are, you know, if you come across a stream, that's where I usually let my horse drink water. Is it pathogen free? Is it sterile water? Is it water that is bottled? No, it's water that's out there in mother nature. And, you know, it's a, it's a risk benefit ratio. My horse needs to drink water because I can't literally carry all the water he needs for an all afternoon trail ride. So I'm going to let him drink out of a, a, a stream that we cross. Am I going to let him drink out of a stagnant pond? Probably not. Hopefully I would make enough plans ahead of time to sort of know where the water sources are. But if you're on an endurance ride or a competitive ride um, where there's organizers, they're going to have water sources. It's not going to be maybe exactly what you want to have, but there's a, um, like Dr. Lyman said, you're not going to reduce the risk to zero. You're, you want to have that horse have access to fresh water. That's going to be critical. Yeah. So this is where my working for a horse mag health magazine brain goes crazy. And I think leptospirosis, like wildlife. Oh, yes. lepto. And so. <laughs> so there could be lepto in the pond. On that's There could that's, be salmonella um, in the pond. There could be yeah. bad yeah. algae. There could be toxins. There could be, you know, nitrous, nitrogens and toxins and all kinds of bad things in that pond yeah yeah and i like i i've gone to the mental leap of we have here in oregon at the coast seals die of leptospirosis we take our dogs to the coast what if they get exposed to leptospirosis and then uh, bring it back and then my horses go blind so that's that's where <laughs> i go <laughs> dr dwyer which i <laughs> 
I think Sometimes you just need extreme. to take a breath <laughs> and yeah. just make sure that, you know, you work with your veterinarian for the appropriate type of vaccinations for your animals. Yeah. Yeah. I share that because I know I'm not the only one who's crazy like that. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, Dr. Lyman, our next questions are about strangles. We have Michelle in Texas wants to know how is strangles contracted and what is the incubation period before symptoms are presented? And Noelle in Washington wants to know, is it true that strangles lives in the ground and that once there's a case of strangles at a farm, there's always a risk for horses getting strangles at that facility? Uh, strangles is contracted. Uh, it's a respiratory disease, so the uh, horses get a bacteria called uh, Streptococcus equi, and uh, the incubation is usually between five to ten days uh, in normal conditions for strangles. And uh, for those who maybe haven't seen strangles, it can uh, it causes real large swellings of lymph nodes around the face uh, and the neck, and that can cause a horse to have difficulty breathing. That's where it gets its name from. Uh, is it true that strangles lives in the ground? Yes, it is true that strangles can live in the ground. In normal conditions, that's weeks, maybe months. Uh, that would be pretty rare even for it to persist for months in the soil. Uh, so that perception that once strangles is on a farm then it's going to be there forever comes from the fact that horses after they recover from strangles can end up becoming persistent shedders the strangles organism can live in a uh, the guttural pouch of the horse and those horses don't show any signs of strangles but they manage to transmit that bacteria to other horses so the idea that it's coming from the ground uh, uh, isn't necessarily true, but the horses that are on that farm can be uh, um, still transmitting strangles beyond the time that people think they have it. So it's really important if you've had a strangles outbreak on a facility to make sure that your veterinarian comes out and does the appropriate diagnostics to, to verify that all the horses are clear of strangles. We have a question from our live audience. Dr. Dwyer, I'll give this one to you. We're down to our last couple minutes here for tonight's broadcast. Grace is in Washington, and she said she's in the process of moving across the country and will be shipping her horse on a commercial van with several other horses from different farms. How can she keep him healthy when he's in the van, probably coming into contact with several other horses with unknown health histories and vaccination statuses? Well, key thing is for her to work with her veterinarian to um, come up with the, the right set of vaccinations for wherever she's transporting that horse to and working with the van line so that hopefully that horse will be um, able to lower its head to get it some some hay. It'll be, you know, stopped periodically to, to have some, some water offered to it. But um, yeah, so you're, you're going to have a commingling of horses from different areas of, of the state or, or areas of that part of the country. And um, getting the horse um, vaccinated and in, you know, real good shape before it makes that, um, that transportation stress will be, uh, will be a, a real important factor. So we are down to 
almost out of time, but I want to um, get in two more topics here really quick. Uh, Dr. Dwyer, we had several questions about cleaning stalls. Should you use a power washer and should you what should you use to disinfect them? Do you have some thoughts on power washers and what disinfectants people should use? I don't like power washers because they can aerosolize pathogens that are on the stalls and on the floors and get them up into um, ledges and areas where they'll dry and then fall back into stalls. And that has been a, a source of recontamination of stalls. So I do not like power washers. I like people to scrub things. Um, they don't like that, but scrub things with a detergent and then rinse to get off all the organic matter because there is no disinfectant that's out there that will work well in you know, any significant amount of organic matter. And that's, you know, manure, dirt, um, urine, et cetera. Um, for disinfectant choice, I think that's something that the, the listeners should talk to their veterinarians about. One disinfectant that doesn't tend to work real well in stall environments, and that's because horses put out 50 pounds of manure, is bleach. And that's because bleach is readily inactivated in the presence of organic matter. Um, so I would in, encourage people to work with their veterinarians and um, and start reading some labels on some disinfectants that are approved for use in horse facilities. How's that for quick? Dr. Lyman, do you have anything else? Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad you said that uh, about bleach is vitally important to use a, a good formulated disinfectant. They have surfactants and other chemicals that are present that are made to make sure that the disinfectant uh, has the best chance of getting in contact with the pathogen. So uh, I would echo that, that of all the disinfectants that people used, uh, bleach should probably be the last one that they're looking to protect their horses in this environment. Did we lose our host? I'm back. You're back. <laughs> I'm back. I I got a little message saying that I had been disconnected, but now I'm back. So um, I missed what you said, but hopefully it was really We good. got it covered. <laughs> okay. It, it, <laughs> covered it that topic. very, Sorry very intelligent. Yes. I've never had that disconnect me before, um, <laughs> but I'm back. Coronavirus. Uh, Dr. Lyman, do you want to take that or do you want me to send that over to Dr. Dwyer? I think Dr. Dwyer can address that. That's fine. Uh, either one. Okay. Dr. Dwyer, we had a question about coronavirus that came in. Um, it was from Judy in Connecticut, and she said a horse was diagnosed with coronavirus at a facility that closed and was sanitized. Is this sufficient to stop um, coronavirus? So coronavirus has got a lipid or fatty envelope around it. So if you um, clean surfaces with a detergent, um, or a surfactant, as Dr. Lyman said, to to get that physically removed and then follow up with a um, a disinfectant that's labeled for use for coronavirus um, that can can kill the virus. There's a lot that we don't know about this particular viral infection, but it does get passed in the manure. And when you've got a horse that's putting out 50 pounds of manure a day, um, that's a lot of organic matter. Is it sufficient to stop the virus? Um, just closing and sanitizing once, you know, 
might not do the trick. Um, I don't under I don't quite know all the details of of a facility that was closed and sanitized. For some of these um, fecal pathogens, whether they're viruses or bacteria, you have to get you have to get really aggressive about in the corners, in the drains, um, in all the nooks and crannies to get rid of it um, before you repopulate that that facility. But there's there's a lot that we don't know about that particular viral infection. Well, thank you, Dr. Dwyer. So I think that our service was letting me know that I had gone over by four minutes and was trying to, to cut us off there. So with that, I'm going to let everyone go. I'm going to we have a resource article for everyone who's listening. If you want to check it out, it's 10 equine biosecurity resources on the horse.com. It's at the horse.com slash 149560. So check that out for more tips on keeping your horse healthy. And unfortunately, we're out of time. So I want to thank both Dr. Dwyer and Dr. Lyman for joining us. And thank you for hosting this really important topic. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, letting us uh, educate on biosecurity today. Yeah. I want to make sure to thank our sponsor, Neogen, uh, for bringing this event to everyone for free, and also to everyone who submitted questions and listened live uh, to this event. Please join us next month for Ask the Horse Live. We're going to be talking about core vaccines for your horse. Until then, from all of us at the horse, have a great night.